All right, so um, we are in week three of our series called God and Evil. We're walking through the book of Job, uh, exploring some of life's biggest and most difficult questions about evil, suffering, and God's role in all of that. Last week, uh, we, the, we looked at God's transcendent sovereignty, specifically God's sovereignty over evil, and we found that there were two major truths that the book of Job affirms. One is that God is sovereign over evil. Job clearly affirms that. He says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So God is sovereign over evil, and yet at the same time, God is good. We read in the next verse that in all of this, Job did not charge God with wrong. And the way that we talked about how Scripture reconciles those two uh, truths that on the surface may seem to be irreconcilable is that while God is sovereign, God is sovereign over evil, but He's not morally responsible for evil because He only ordains it to bring about a greater good that could not be brought about in any other way. So God only ordains evil to bring about a greater good that could not be brought about in any other way. We, for example, talked about the story of Joseph, and Joseph tells his brothers at the end of his ordeal, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. So the evil that Joseph's brothers committed against him were, in a very real sense, evil, and they were morally responsible for that. And yet behind it all, God was orchestrating it for his own sovereign and good purposes. And this morning, we're going to be building on that by taking a look at the role of Satan in the book of Job. And um, I'll just be up front with you guys. So one of the things we, you know, one of our values as a church is scripture-driven preaching. So we preach expository sermons. Sometimes that gets uh, confused with verse by verse, and people think expository means that you literally walk verse by verse. That's not necessarily what expository preaching is. Expository preaching means we're letting the text drive the sermon. I don't take my ideas that I think are great ideas and then go look for a Bible verse that will fit around my ideas so that I can tell you what I want to say. But we go to God's Word, and I tell you what God's Word says and help you apply it to your life. That's expository preaching. And so sometimes that's verse by verse straight through the Bible. And sometimes we're looking at the bigger picture of an entire book. And so uh, this morning, as we look at the role of Satan in the book of Job, we're also really going to be taking a step back and asking an even bigger question. And I think it's the question that's behind this question. And the bigger question is, is, is where, where did evil come from in the first place? And if God... If evil was included in God's plan before the earth was ever created, if that's true, then why? And so um, we're going to be in Job, but we're also going to have to go to other parts of Scripture uh, to help answer that question this morning. So I just want to give you a heads up. But we are going to read Job chapter 1, verses 6 to 22. That's where we're going to start. So I'm going to read and then pray, and then we'll dive in. Now, there was a day... When the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? 
Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their older brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word, and we need your help. We need your wisdom, O God, now to be able to understand it, to apply it to our lives. I need your help as I preach, God, apart from you, I can do nothing. I'm just, I'm just a man, I'm weak, and I pray that you now would work through my weakness. I pray that your word wouldn't return void. God, I pray that you would encourage and build up and strengthen the faith of your people this morning, oh God. I pray, God, that, that, that we would behold you in all of your glory and that this morning you would do the work of preparing us for the day when, when we will see you face to face and we won't behold you through a veil anymore, but we'll, we'll see you, we'll be in your presence. And I pray that for anyone in this room this morning that doesn't know you, that is not born again, that has not been saved, maybe they've been going to church their entire lives, but their hearts have never been transformed by the gospel. They've never been delivered from their sin. They've never seen just how good you are, just how holy you are. Please, God, open their eyes this morning. Only you can open the eyes of the blind. Only you can unstop the ears of the deaf. Would you be merciful, O oh God? Would you save those who don't know you this morning so that they can be forgiven of their sins and they can be with you and with us forever in your presence in the new heavens and the new earth? We love you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in, uh, in the first five verses, we're introduced to Job. Job's got a great life. He's a great guy. And then in, in verse 6, as Pastor Andrew would say, as Job is just bebopping along, he's just living his life, 
Unbeknownst to him, Satan and the sons of God appeared before Yahweh in heaven, God, the Lord, to give an account. Now, who is Satan exactly? Like, where does, where does Satan come from? Well, the, the Bible teaches us that Satan is a fallen angel who led a rebellion of other angels against God. His name means adversary because he opposes God and he opposes people made in God's image, especially the church. Scripture has several different names for him, the accuser, the tempter, the father of lies, the devil, the God of this world. He tempts and then he accuses people before God, trying to deceive and to destroy image bearers. And Satan first appeared on the scene in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. He lied and he deceived Eve and Adam into rebelling against God. And the result was that sin and death entered into the world. And Satan is really, he's got the same bag of tricks. He's up to the same things here in Job chapter 1. He was trying to to tempt and deceive Job into rebelling against God. You see, Satan was convinced that Job only worshipped God for all of the blessings that God had given him. And Satan was pretty convinced that if God would just let him take away all of the blessings and all of the protection that God had placed around him, that Satan could easily tempt Job to curse God and die. And that's what Satan set out to do. Satan's challenge to God was basically that Job loved God's blessings more than God himself. And what's so surprising is that God seems to go along with it. God told Satan, okay, fine. You can afflict him. He puts limits on what Satan's allowed to do. He puts boundaries, but God permits Satan to do this. And as we pointed out last week, it's not just that God permitted, but God's the one who actually draws Satan's attention to Job in the first place. Do you notice that? He says, have you considered my servant Job? Can I just imagine Job trying to hide behind a tree? Like, God, no, God, stop, right? All All of this begs a couple of questions. If God already knew Job's heart then why entertain this challenge from Satan in the first place? Did God just get suckered into a bet with Satan? You could be forgiven for wondering if everyone would have been better off if God would have just told Satan to take a hike right here in chapter 1, right? I mean, wouldn't Job have been better off? But as I mentioned before we read the text, behind this question are, are two deeper questions that we need to explore this morning. Where did evil come from in the first place? Did God's plan when he created the world include evil and suffering? And and the second question kind of follows, what, what is the purpose of evil? If evil was a part of God's plan somehow when he created the world, then why? Wouldn't it have been better if God had created a world where Eden lasted forever and where sin and death never entered the picture? And if God's truly omnipotent and all power, well, couldn't he have done that? Couldn't he have created a world in which the fall wasn't even possible? <clears throat> That's where we're headed this morning. Just some light work, right? Light questions. That's supposed to be funny. I'm trying to like, come on. Y'all with me? Are you awake? I know these are hard questions, but we need to dive into them because they're important questions. And the good news is, is that there are questions, maybe you never knew this, but there are questions that the Bible gives us answers for. And we're going to unpack them this morning, okay? Here's the main point of the sermon in a sentence. It's, it's a little long, and so I'm going to read it twice, and it'll be up on the screen behind me. 
God ordained that evil would enter into the world so that He could display the riches of His mercy and grace to His people by rescuing them from it. God ordained that evil would enter into the world so that He could display the riches of His mercy and grace to His people by rescuing them from it. And we're going to go ahead and unpack that statement by looking at God's Word over the next few minutes. So was the fall really part of God's will? Listen to what the Westminster Confession says, one of the most famous uh, statements of faith, Protestant statements of faith written in the 1600s, says this, Our first parents, being seduced by by the subtlety and temptation of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. This their sin, God was pleased, according to His wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purposed to order it, to his own glory. So, evil is not some equal and opposite force that entered into creation to challenge God. God wasn't just doing his thing and then all of a sudden, here comes Satan from out of nowhere and God's like, whoa, I got to do something about this. And now there's this big cosmic paddle and they're battling it out and we're just sitting back hoping and pulling for the Lord to win out. That's how a lot of people see spiritual warfare, and that's not at all what's going on. When God created the world, He did create it perfectly good. Genesis 1.31 affirms that. Everything was good. But God also placed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. And He could have made every tree free to eat from, right? He could have made every tree free to eat from, but He didn't. He placed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then He told Adam and Eve, Don't eat from it, because on the day that you do, you will surely die. God also could have stopped the serpent from slithering onto the scene in Genesis chapter 3. But He didn't. He could have stopped him from doing it, but He didn't. And that leads to the inevitable conclusion that it was God's will for the fall to happen. He was not caught by surprise by the fall. But why would God do that? Why not just leave Eden undisturbed forever? And the Westminster Confession that we read a moment ago kind of clues us into the answer. The short answer is for His own glory. This is a very important foundation to lay to understand the origin of evil. God's ultimate purpose is the magnification of His own glory. God's ultimate purpose is the magnification of His own glory. You see, most people believe that God's ultimate end is to make them happy or to fulfill their dreams. And for that reason, they tie God's goodness to whether or not He does that. If God does that, if He makes me happy and fulfills my dreams, then it's easy for me to believe that God is good. But if suffering enters my life, now I begin to question that God is good because God's goodness is tied to whether or not He makes me happy. But God's goodness is not tied to our happiness as the ultimate end because our happiness is not God's ultimate end. The magnification of His own glory is God's ultimate end. And if you think about it, if God's ultimate purpose was to make you and me happy, then that means that the universe would be man-centered. It would be all about us. And when you say it like that, it sounds a little bit silly, doesn't it? Why? Because we're not worthy for the universe to revolve around us. We're not worthy. Like, I can't even hammer a nail in straight. And I think that the universe is supposed to revolve around me? Like, really? 
That come on, that's kind of crazy, isn't it? It's kind of silly that we would think that way, and yet that's how our, that's what our default is. It's because it's our sin nature. We've all bought Satan's lie that hey, you can be just like God. The universe should revolve around you. He's deceived us into rebelling against God, and so we set ourselves up as the center of the universe. We're rebels against him. But here's the thing. You know, and you might hear that, well, you know, God's ultimate end is the magnification of his own glory. And you think, well, that sounds kind of arrogant. But here's the deal. It's good and it's right for God's ultimate end to be the magnification of his own glory because there's nothing and no one greater than God. What else is God going to point you to? Something he made? Like, where else, what else deserves the worship and the honor and the praise of every living thing in the universe besides Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth. So it would actually be wrong for God to magnify anything else as the center of the universe beside himself. You understand? And here's the thing. God created us not because he needed us, but so that he could share his glory with us. So that we could enjoy the glory that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have been enjoying with one another as the triune God for all of eternity past. In other words, God's ultimate end is that we would see Him and know Him. That's the greatest possible good that He could give us. There's nothing greater God could point us to than Himself. And this is all throughout the Bible again and again and again. When you begin to understand that principle then as you read through Scripture, you'll begin to see it over and over and over. Let me give you an example. Think about the Exodus and how God magnifies His own glory in Exodus. It's one of the most remarkable demonstrations of God's glory that there is. If you'll remember, God told Moses to go tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. But God also told Moses that Pharaoh was going to refuse. Kind of strange, right? Like, hey, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Oh, and by the way, he's not going to listen. He's not going to comply. And that's not all. Because God says in Exodus 4.21, he says this. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. What in the world is God up to there? There's a dual explanation for Pharaoh's hardening. Pharaoh's own sin caused him to rebel against God. At the same time, it was God's will to harden Pharaoh in his sin so that Pharaoh would not let the people of Israel go of his own volition. Now, why would he do that? Listen to Exodus chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. The Lord said, says this to Pharaoh. He says, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God didn't need ten plagues to bring Egypt to his knees, to its knees. With one word, God could have struck Egypt down with pestilence, and he could have made an end to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. But he didn't. And he continued to harden Pharaoh's stubborn heart when any sane person would have cried uncle. As you read through the, uh, the story, 
even Pharaoh's own servants are telling him, like, can you please just let them go already? Don't you see that our country's literally being ruined? And he, and he just continues to stubbornly harden his heart, and it's the Lord also hardening his heart. God prolonged the hardening for one primary purpose, and it was to demonstrate his spectacular power so that his name would be proclaimed in all of the earth, so that it would be clearly seen that Yahweh is the one true God, and all the gods of Egypt are false gods and are not gods at all. That is why God did it. And, and similarly, God could have allowed Israel to be in bondage for 400 minutes rather than 400 years before they were delivered. Have you ever thought about that? 400 years of bondage. Why so long? Why did God tarry so long before He delivered them? Because it only accentuates the glory of the deliverance all the more. Think about how we love a great comeback in sports. It's, it's really fun to watch your, your basketball team win a game by 30 points, right? But Watching your team come down from down 10 points with less than two minutes to go on a buzzer beater, you never forget it, right? It's an amazing experience. It's, it's, it's one of those games that you talk about for years and years to come. Why? It's because the glory of the deliverance, the glory of overcoming is so much greater when the odds were stacked against you, Right? The Exodus is so memorable and God was so glorified precisely because Israel's suffering was so great and God's defeat of Egypt was so devastating. That's why we still talk about it today. But the Exodus is just a microcosm of the bigger story of redemptive history. Ultimately, the entire storyline of Scripture is to the praise of God's glorious grace. The first chapter of Ephesians unpacks this Wonderfully. I want to read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 8. It says this, it says, He, referring to God, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. What this passage is saying is that if you are a Christian, then the ultimate end for which God predestined you and redeemed you is to the praise of His glorious grace. In fact, two more times in this chapter, Paul will go on to use the phrase, to the praise of His glory, when referring to God's purpose in redeeming us. The, here's what I want you to understand. The reason that God authored sin into the storyline of Scripture was so that He could display the riches of His justice and His mercy at the cross. The cross of Christ is the focal point of the entire Bible and of all of history. Everything from Genesis chapter 3 and onwards is pointing to the cross. 
Even back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right after the fall, when the Lord is speaking to the serpent, He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise His heel. At the cross, God displayed His infinite justice and His infinite mercy. God displayed His wrath towards sin at the cross. Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took the punishment that we deserved in our place on the cross. That's why He came. And at the same time that God was demonstrating His righteous wrath against sin, He was also demonstrating the riches of His mercy and grace because instead of pouring out that wrath that we deserved on me and you, He was pouring it out on Jesus instead. He was pouring it out upon His Son. You see, the cross of Christ is the only way that God could have displayed His infinite justice, His righteousness, and His grace, and His mercy. There was no other way. But the story would not be glorious if it finished there. Redemptive history would be no more than a tragedy if the Son of God remained in the grave. But He's not in the grave. Jesus died and three days later, He rose from the dead. He defeated death because it was impossible for death to hold Him. Because He is the author of life itself. And because Jesus is alive, He's able to raise from the dead everyone who repents of their sin and trusts in Him. Because Jesus is alive, you and I get to live forever. If you've placed your faith and your trust in Him, He will raise us from the dead. Only a living Savior can truly redeem people who are enslaved to sin and to death. I just ask you this morning, have you repented of your sin? and placed your trust in Jesus, you don't have to, I say this all the time, you don't have to wonder whether or not God is good and whether or not God loves you. He's demonstrated His love at the cross by sending His one and only Son, Jesus, to die in your place. And there's no other way to salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you've never truly repented of your sin and placed your faith and your trust in Jesus, then that means that right now you are still in rebellion against God. And right now the wrath of God hangs over you. And if you were to die today in your sin, you would spend eternity separated from God in hell. And I'm here to tell you this morning the good news of the gospel that you don't have to be condemned. You do not have to perish. The free gift of God's mercy and grace is offered to you right now this morning. There's no accident that you were brought here this morning. Maybe somebody invited you. Maybe you saw an ad online or or, or one of our Facebook posts online. Or maybe you just drove by and saw one of our signs. I don't know. I don't know why you're here, but I know that you're not here by accident. I know that God brought you here. And I know that God doesn't want you to perish. And if you will call out upon the Lord Jesus and tell, I know that I've sinned against you. I know that, like Andrew was saying earlier, no matter how much good I do, I can never make myself righteous. I need you to forgive me and to make me new. He'll do that right now in this moment. Please don't leave here today if you've never made that decision to surrender your life to Jesus. Don't let this opportunity pass you by. You, don't, you and I are not guaranteed tomorrow. You never know whether today 
is going to be the day that you draw your last breath. Don't place your eternity, don't, don't gamble with your eternity. Place your faith and your trust in Jesus today. No matter how far you've run, no matter how great your sin is, you can't out the grace of God. Christ died for sinners. He died for sinners. Just like me and just like you. Now church, if it were not for evil, here's what we need to understand. If it were not for evil, there would have been no opportunity for God to display His infinite justice and His infinite mercy. In fact, if it were not for evil, the cross and the resurrection would be completely unnecessary. But if God's supreme desire is to display the riches of His glorious grace, especially to His elect, to His people, and if His grace is most clearly seen at the cross then that leaves us with no other conclusion than that the fall was necessary. Does that make sense? Are you guys tracking with me? I'm going to say it one more time. If God's supreme desire is to display the riches of His glorious grace, and if His grace is most clearly seen at the cross, then the fall was necessary because that means that before the foundation of the earth, God desired to send His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for the sins of His people because He wanted nothing more than for us to see and to know the extent and the greatness of His love and of His righteousness. And that's seen at the cross. We would never know God's justice and His mercy apart from the fall and the existence of evil. We wouldn't even have a frame of reference for concepts like justice or mercy without evil, right? Like, justice wouldn't make sense if there was no evil. Mercy wouldn't make sense. Grace wouldn't make sense. Just like a person born blind, like, if you were to try to describe color to them, there's no frame of reference for what light is. So how can you describe color to a person born blind? And it is God's justice and His mercy and His grace that makes Him so praiseworthy, right? Aren't those the things that make us want to praise Him? Aren't those the things that when we think about how great God is, we naturally gravitate towards His righteousness and His purity and His His mercy and His grace? These are the very qualities of God that cause us to be in awe. Scott Christensen, author and pastor, he summarizes like this. He says, "...without ordaining at least some significant evil, it is not possible..." for God to maximize His love to any. How so? The maximal display of God's love toward His creatures is uniquely located in His mercy, and mercy as an act of divine love makes sense only when it comes in the face of evil. But we actually need to take it a step further. It's not just that evil makes justice and mercy possible. In fact, the greater the evil the greater and more glorious is the redemption that rescues us from evil. Usually when we think of evil, we think of evil that's been perpetrated against us, right? We don't think about the own, our own evil that we've committed. But we need to start with the evil that we ourselves have committed by rebelling against God when we think about the problem of evil. We have played a part in the brokenness of this world. All of us have. And it's only when you understand that you deserved condemnation for your own evil that you will truly appreciate just how glorious and how magnificent your redemption is. In reality, the greater that our sin is, the more glorious God's grace in redeeming us is. This is, you remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. He says, 
uh, where, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That's what he's talking about. Paul himself was amazed at God's grace because he considered himself the chief of sinners. The former slave trader John Newton wrote the song Amazing Grace because he could not get over the fact that God had saved a wretch like him. That God had redeemed him when he, would, when he had committed so many awful, awful atrocities. Grace that saves a wretch like me that once loved to plunge headlong into evil truly is amazing. If there were any doubt about how great the debt was that you once owed to God for your sin, just consider the incredible price that had to be paid to redeem you. Do you know what it was? I love how 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 puts it. He says this, if you're a believer, he says, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold. All the money in the world could not have redeemed you. All the money in the world couldn't have saved you. You were redeemed not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with what? With the precious blood of Christ. Like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. The blood of Jesus, the perfect Son of God, was spilled on the cross because that's what it took to redeem us from our sin. That's how great our debt was. That's how far of a chasm existed between you and between God. A chasm that you could have never bridged. We are hopeless apart from the blood of Jesus that spilled for our sin. That's why I said earlier that if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Him, you don't have a chance for salvation apart from Jesus. There's no other way. Your debt is too great. You cannot pay it. That's because God is so infinitely holy that makes our sin so great. But friends, that's what makes our redemption all the more glorious. Think of it. Think of it. We were utterly hopeless. There was no way. We didn't have a chance. And there was nothing in us that deserved to be saved. And yet God, for some reason, the only reason we can point to is that He's merciful and gracious. He, he, he came and He dwelt among us. And He lived in the brokenness of this world and He died the death that you deserve. That's amazing. That's the gospel. That's why it's called good news. That's why we should, we're called to rejoice. If you were out at sea and your fishing boat broke down in the middle of the ocean and 20 minutes later another boat came along and rescued you, you'd be thankful, right? You'd be thankful. You'd be like, okay, awesome. Man, that's good. But if your fishing boat broke down in the middle of the ocean and you were adrift for 40 days and you were starving to death and you were out of water and you were dying and then someone gave their life in order to rescue you, the glory of the rescuer and your joy would be far greater, would it not? That would make national news, would it not? Why? Because your condition was so perilous and the cost to rescue you was so high. That's why God's grace abounds where evil abounds. Tremendous evil ultimately increases the joy of the redeemed and the glory of the Redeemer. God gets glory and we get joy. And that's what heaven is going to be like. Paul goes on later in Ephesians chapter 2 in the next chapter. 
And he makes this stunning statement where he says that God has made us alive in Christ Jesus so that. Why? Why has God saved you? Listen to this purpose statement. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What? Y'all see what I'm seeing? Or it's not on the screen. But you see it in your Bibles? Do you hear what I'm hearing? He saved us so that forever and ever and ever without end, He could just keep lavishing the riches of His grace and kindness toward us. That's incredible. That's incredible. And guess what? We get the joy of being the recipients of His grace and He gets all the glory because we get to spend forever enjoying His grace while we respond with rapturous praise. That's what the new heavens... Yeah, that's what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be like. And the existence of evil now just makes the glory of the new heavens and the new earth all the more great. Now, what does this mean for our lives right now? Let me just give you two things, and then we'll close. First of all, it is through suffering that we come to know God more intimately. It was actually, circling back to Job, I told you we were going to be all over the place this morning. But we're coming full circle. It was actually through his affliction that Job came to see and to know God like he never had before. After 28 chapters of asking God why, God finally responded. But he never answered Job's why question. He never tells Job why. Instead, he revealed himself to Job. And after God had finished speaking to Job, Job repented. And he says in chapter 42, verse 5, he said, I had heard of you. By the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. And if there is nothing better than God, then seeing Him is the greatest gift that there is. Many of you know by experience that it's usually in seasons of some of our deepest suffering that we draw nearest to God and that we come to know Him more intimately than we ever have before. That was certainly true in Job's case. I love how the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. He's writing to the church in Corinth. He's been through a lot. And he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That's, that's pretty rough, right? Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. And listen to this. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. One of the many purposes of God in our suffering is to teach us to rely on Him, to wean us off the things of the world, to show us that what we really need is Him, to show us where our true treasure really lies. It's through suffering that we come to know more God more intimately. And then secondly, Suffering makes our coming restoration even sweeter. Now, I asked the question earlier if we would have been better off if God had created a world where Eden lasted forever, if the fall never would have happened. How would you answer that question now, 30 minutes later? I think our, maybe our first instinct would have been to say, we'd be better off if Eden would have never happened. But how would you answer it now? Well, the answer is no, we wouldn't have been better off 
if the fall had never happened because then we would not know God as our Redeemer. We would have completely missed out on the riches of His glorious grace. We would have completely missed out on the incredible display of His love at the cross where the precious blood of Jesus was poured out for us. We would have completely missed out on the display of His perfect righteousness and justice. In the new heavens and the new earth, we will enjoy being in God's presence even more than we would have in Eden because we will enjoy Him as redeemed people who are recipients of grace. And at the end of the day, He is using your suffering now to magnify the glory of the redemption that is coming. One of my favorite passages is 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18, where Paul says, These light, momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Suffering and evil are not just things that we have to grit our teeth through and just weather and we'll get by on the other side. That passage says that these light momentary afflictions are not meaningless. They are purposeful. They are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. One of the things, the many things that God is doing is increasing our eternal joy because the redemption will be so much sweeter. The rescue will be so much greater when we finally enter into glory, when our groaning is finally ceased, when Jesus finally returns and makes all things new, when he finally vindicates us. It's going to be a glorious day. Why is all of this so important for you right now? Well, because just as Satan used suffering in Job's life to tempt him to rebel against God, he attempts to do the same thing in the lives of believers. Satan is not always the one who afflicts people, but like, like he does in Job, but sometimes he is. And regardless of Satan's role, God is always sovereign over any evil that befalls us. But Satan is always seeking to use that suffering to deceive us and to tempt us to rebel against God. Listen to Peter's words in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 to 10, to suffering Christians in the early church. He says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. When suffering enters into your life, Satan is going to whisper into your ear things like, God doesn't really love you. Or, there's no way a good God would let this happen. God can't be real. God can't be good. We're called to resist Him, firm in our faith. And the way that we do that is by fixing our eyes on that eternal glory in Christ Jesus. It's by trusting that God is causing this evil to prepare for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And the practical way that you do this is really simple. For such a, for such a complex doctrine that we've covered this morning, the action steps that you need to take this morning are really simple. Read your Bible and gather with other believers. God's Word contains these promises that we need to cling to so that we can weather the storm when He allows evil to come into our lives. 
And if you're not filling your heart and your mind with the truth from his word, then you will be susceptible to the father of lies. A few weeks ago, the end of Ephesians, you remember John Turner, one of our other elders, he preached on it. And he said that we need to wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so he said every time you know, you're, you're tempted to doubt, right, he did the sound effects. He went, shing, right that, you know, like, so hide God's Word in your heart so that every time Satan's like, God doesn't really love you, shing, right? Or every time he's like, God must not be real, shing, right? We're pulling out the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Hide God's Word in your heart. You shouldn't be dis- surprised if you're susceptible to Satan's attack if you're you know, picking up your Bible once or twice a week. I'm, I'm just being honest with you. You need to get into God's Word. Your intake of the Word of God needs to be far greater than your intake of television or social media or, or you know, fantasy novels or whatever else it is. And then you need to gather with other believers, with people who are going to remind you of these things that are true. Job's friends... Don't gather with people like Job's friends. They were trying to give him advice so that he could get all his stuff back that he lost. You don't need friends like that. You need friends who are going to point you to treasure in heaven. You need friends who are going to remind you that Jesus is better than anything in this world, even if you lose everything. Glory is coming. The church is a wonderful gift from God, and we're called to bear one another's burdens. But I'm just going to tell you, friend, um, the church can't bear your burdens They can't share your burdens with you if you're holding the church at arm's length. If you're just kind of coming and attending on Sundays, but you're not letting anybody into your life, you're not letting yourself be known, and you're just kind of spectating, then you're going to be bearing these burdens alone. And I'm just here to tell you, you don't have to do that. And you shouldn't do that. And you can't really do that long term. You can't do that and stay healthy. You need the body of Christ, Christian. Look, we'd love it if you get plugged into this church, but we're not here to grow our church really big. That's not our goal. Our goal is to help every single member of our church know Jesus and to make him known for the glory of Jesus around the world. If you get plugged in here, fantastic. We would love to be your church family and to come around you. But if this isn't the church for you, go find one and get plugged in and join the church. Go find a healthy local church that's going to teach the Bible and become a member and be known by the other members of there. You need it. You're not going to be able to weather Satan's attacks without it. You're not. One of the great ways you can get plugged in here is our life groups throughout the week. We got our third life group that's about to start next week. We got two Tuesday night ones, one on Lackland Air Force Base, one at Pastor Andrew's house. We got a life group on Thursday nights at my house. Just go to our website, pillarsanantonio.com, and you can uh, go to the the, the tabs at the top, and I forget which one, but you can find it. You guys are smart people. And get plugged in, or just come and ask us about it after the service. Read your Bible, gather with believers. And then one last way, these aren't the only ways that we can um, remind ourselves and, uh, of, of the glory that's to come. But one last one that I'm going to mention this morning is the Lord's Supper. One of the ways that God has given us to fix our eyes on the future glory that awaits us is through practicing the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper helps us to look back and to look around and to look forward. 